of the apostles' impact and influence on Christian churches is undeniable, but his impact was not a positive one in the beginning. An encounter on the road to Damascus would make all the difference. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's worship services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich explains that this complete change in Paul's life teaches us about God and our life with him. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, An Eye-Opening Experience from Acts chapter 9. Well, it's good to be in the Lord's house with you guys this morning as we open up his word and see what he has to say. As I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're going to be reading verse, the first 16 verses, first 16 verses of the chapter. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of them, him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, well, who art thou, who art thou Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembled and astonished, saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. And neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. He hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how, how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in thy way as thou camest hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it, as it had been scales and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, Lord, we are grateful to have this opportunity to come and to worship you, to praise you, to hear your word proclaimed, Lord. It is truly a blessing, even on days like today where the weather is uncooperative, that we can find that respite, we can find that retreat from everything that is going on on the outside and to come into your house, Lord, to be lifted up, to be, to be encouraged, to hear from you. 
and to celebrate you. And Lord, we thank you for that opportunity. You are truly worthy of all of our worship and our praise and, and all honor that is bestowed upon you and even greater things. And Lord, we are stepping into your word now and we just ask that you help us to have our hearts and our minds open and ready to hear what you have to say to us. Help us to take in everything that you are trying to speak to us about, that we might meditate upon it, that we might let it take root in our lives, that it might grow. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to be the one to stand here and, and present your word, but I just ask that you use me as your vessel. Take away distraction, pride, whatever it might be, Lord, that could interfere in any way with the message. Uh, just take it all away and, and fill me with your spirit that I might only speak the words that you've given me. And Lord, help us as a church as we continue to look for the decisions that we make in the future. Help look for direction from you. Help us to always be making the right decisions that we might fulfill the role that you have, uh, that you have appointed us to. That we might always be in accordance with your purposes and your will. Lord, as individuals, help us to spread the gospel, but not only just in words, but also with our lives. Let us live lives that glorify you and point others to you. And Lord, help us to continually seek your will in our lives that we might be doing that which you have called us to do. And Lord, we ask that you forgive us of our sins, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, uh, I know I talk about Paul a lot of times, and he is a very, very interesting character and a very powerful demonstration of how significant the gospel uh, can be in both its impact on uh, individual and impact on the world um, as a result of one individual's conversion. Um, and Saul was, for all intents and purposes, uh, the epitome, really, of the ideal religious man when you think about it. He was very, very highly educated in the law. He was taught by what they called at the time the teacher of teachers by a man by the name of Gamaliel. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. And he was a Jew, but what's interesting about Paul, and we often lose sight of this, was he was also a Greek citizen at the same time. He was a Jew, yet, but he had a Greek background. Thus, he had a connection to both the Jews and the Gentiles. He wasn't exclusively seen as one or the other, because he had been raised in the best of schools. He was a man of great influence in religious circles. He had a, an absolute fire, a passion for his beliefs that was seemingly unmatched by anybody else around him. And it was so much so that it would seem that he would stop at nothing to stamp out any and all up-and-coming religions that opposed the beliefs to which he was taught. He was a man of very fierce convictions and determination. He was kind of, see, almost seemed like an unstoppable force. We see in Ananias' response that he was well-known and feared amongst the Jews, as, or amongst Christians at least. This is how Paul described himself, as a matter of fact, in Philippians 3, 5, and 6, where he says, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Okay, this is Paul describing himself after he was converted, describing his previous self. So we got to keep that in context. This is after he was saved. He was, this was in a letter to the church in Philippi. He was describing himself 
as his former individual. All these things he had to boast about. All these things he had that made him very highly respected and highly thought of amongst the Jewish religious leaders. So consider where our passage then lands us this morning. Saul had so severely persecuted the church in Jerusalem that they had scattered. Many had scattered to the surrounding areas uh, with a gathering now forming in the Syrian city of Damascus. Now, Paul, being the zealous individual that he is, tried to seek out all of these splinter groups that had formed uh, and had spread out from Jerusalem. So he found out about this faraway town that had this group of Christians. So Paul sought the permission of the religious leaders to seek these individuals out. He went to the high priest and he said, I want to extradite any of these Christians, the people of what he called the way, which was actually the movement that, or the Christ movement that was referred to at the time. I want to find any of these members of the way in Damascus and I want to be able to arrest them and bring them back. This is Paul's mindset. He wanted to bring them back where they would be imprisoned or maybe even worse, be put to death for their beliefs. Now, Damascus wasn't a town that was just around the corner. <laughs> Damascus was 140 miles from Jerusalem. 140 miles he journeyed to seek these people out. He believed in his cause so much, as much as anyone else. So what could possibly be so convincing, so life-changing, so radical as to cause him to not only give up on his previous cause that he so fervently defended, but to turn and apply the very same determination, devotion, dedication, to the ones he persecuted for so long. What could possibly make that kind of a change in an individual? To that I answer with one word. Jesus. Jesus can make that kind of a change in a person. Now we're all familiar with this story, I'm sure, with Saul on the road to Damascus, uh, uh, later becoming known as Paul. It's a very pivotal moment in the New Testament as a whole, probably second only to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For in this moment, we see a born-again apostle, missionary, and warrior for the cause of Christ that would have such an influence on Christ's disciples for millenniums to come. I mean, think about it. We read the New Testament. The epistles are all Paul's writings to the different churches, to different individuals. He has had a tremendous impact thousands of years after he lived. He gives us an example in so many ways of what it means to live for Christ, to do mission work, to plant churches. To be willing to make incredible sacrifices and suffer incredible uh, punishments and, and, and just abuses for the cause of Christ. He's truly a giant of faith. But we can't miss some of the most, most important lessons, some of the most monumental lessons that Saul's experience gives us 
during just these few days around his conversion. There, I, I could go on for hours. I promise you I won't. Maybe. But there are so many lessons we can discern from this experience of Saul's conversion. And, and, and we have a lot to talk about. So let's go ahead and I'm going to dive in and start peeling back all these truths that we see about this passage. And one of the first things that we can glean from reading this, this, this uh, particular event with Paul is that God continues to pursue us even when we run. God continues to pursue us even when we run. One of the most glaring things we notice about Saul's story is how Jesus continually comes and tries to pursue him despite his behavior being the very antithesis of what his reaction should have been. Now some of you might be asking, well, wait a minute, what do you mean pursuing him? Was this not his first encounter with Jesus? Well, Tucked within our verse this morning is a statement made by Jesus that alludes to the fact that God was, had been pursuing him through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice in our verse this morning where it said, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. This statement comes from a farming practice where a farmer would use a stick with a sharp object on the end to prod or goad the ox into moving. It was a prompting that farmers used to encourage compliance to the interactions coming from, through, that were coming through the yoke itself. So we can assume, since Jesus chose to use this statement in reference to his interactions with Paul, that somewhere along the way, Saul had been getting prodded to take the right path, to make the right choices. What was it, though, that could have led the conviction of Saul, though. What could have happened along the way? What events could have he have experienced that would have put him in a position? Well, let's go back in time then. The most likely event that factored, or at least in part, if not significantly, was in the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, if you recall, Saul was present. Saul was consenting in his death, even though he didn't actually participate in it. We oftentimes lose sight of the fact Saul was at Stephen's stoning, even holding the coats for those who were chucking the stones at him. So he was present and consenting to the death. Listen to Paul's words of his responsibility in this, and we find this in Acts 2 and 2.20. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Paul's acknowledging, hey, I was there. In fact, I was a part of the agreement to stone him to death. I was a part of this group who wanted to kill this man for nothing more than being a follower of Jesus Christ. He was agreeable to what was being done to Stephen, and what's more is he guarded the coats of those that cast the stones that would rob Stephen of his very life. But something happened here that would very likely have a huge impact on Paul. If you recall during that event, as the last pulses of life ebbed from Stephen's body, he would not recant his story regarding Jesus, and he would not turn from his faith. The thought had to cross Saul's mind at this point. 
Why would somebody be willing to die? So why would somebody be willing to speak out on behalf and support of something that they knew was a lie very up to the very point of their death? That had to set in Paul's mind and make him wonder. Of course, we know that it was no falsehood and that what Stephen believed it was the truth. But if that wasn't enough, Stephen cried out that he could see Jesus. And he went from seeing Jesus in the flesh to joining him in heaven. And then he did something that must have really blown them away. He begged for God's forgiveness. Not for him. Not for his own sins. As he was breathing his last breaths, he spent his last breaths not asking for his own forgiveness, for he knew that he was already forgiven, but rather asking for the forgiveness of those responsible for his death. Now there is no doubt, mind you, that this must have had a profound impact on Saul, seeing this take place. But I'm sure, as we all see, Based on his actions, he would suppress the convictions that he felt in an effort to silence it. And perhaps even tried to use it to fuel himself to become all the more determined in his mission of extinguishing the way. One would think that this would outright even amplify rebellion despite God's pursuit of him, that God would turn away. That God tried to get his attention. And he said, no, I'm going to be even more determined to squash this whole idea of Christianity. And God would have said, well, I'm done. I'm not pursuing this guy anymore. He clearly is a lost cause. But no, God continued. God continued to pursue him. Not a chance. Because our God is a pursuing God. He will chase you. He will beckon you. Time and time again, he will call you to repent of your sins. To reject the worldly, rebellious ways of life. And turn to the one true source of eternal salvation. He calls us to put aside all foolish and false thinkings. That there is any way that we can come before God outside of Jesus Christ. And his shed blood. Now, with Saul, God did something pretty extraordinary to get his attention. I mean, I don't think any one of us in our salvation experience were heard the d direct voice of Jesus where others around could hear it, were blinded, had an enormous light shine upon us in the very heat of the day. None of us probably experienced quite what Saul did during his salvation experience. Saul has a person-to-person -person encounter with the Lord. Listen to these descriptions of what would cause Saul to stop in his tracks and fall to the ground on his face. Acts 22.6 And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh into Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light around me. At midday, O king, and this jumps to 26.13, <clears throat> At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining around about me, which journeyed with me. Now, I want you to keep something in mind here. This occurred at the noonday hour. The sun was at its highest point. The day was at its brightest. All right? 
the hottest and brightest point of the day, yet the glory of the Lord shone so bright as to completely overwhelm even the light of the sun. Think about that for a while. Now we know it gets blasted hot around here in the summer. Thank goodness we're on the backside of this finally. Standing out in the summer sun in this area at the peak of the day, it is very hot and very bright. Can you imagine any light overwhelming that? This is what Paul experienced, or at the time, Saul. It was a glorious encounter. And how does the pursuit come to a head? How does the God of all creation, whose very son's followers were being pursued, arrested, even killed, approach the leader of these very atrocities with compassion? We don't see him just blisteringly laying into Paul. We see Jesus call to him and ask him, why? Why, Saul? Why are you persecuting me? And isn't that an interesting statement? It's a very important statement. Jesus said, didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Because for us, what that shows us is the absolute association that Jesus has with those who are his followers. If you're doing it to the followers of Jesus, then you are doing it to Jesus himself, is what Jesus is saying here. And this makes sense, given another statement that Jesus made in describing the judgment, when he says this in Matthew 25, 40. Where he says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. You see, even in this statement, in Jesus, in reference in Matthew, he's indicating the connection he's got with his followers, so much so that if somebody is persecuting or injuring or helping one of his followers, they are effectively doing it to Jesus Christ himself. Then Jesus would put Saul into a state of blindness with a purpose. Jesus' kindness would put him in a state that would allow a unique and complete focus on not only what just happened, but who was responsible for what just happened. You know, if you ever... I, I don't think anybody in this group probably has ever, ever had this happen, but if you ever lose one of your senses, they say that other senses start to compensate for it. They start to become more acute, more defined. People who have lost their sight tend to be able to hear more acutely than other people because they have to compensate. Paul lost his sight. He lost one of his senses so that he had the opportunity, he was denied one of his senses so that he could spend more time in his mind going over what happened. Our God wants not revenge for our rebellion, nor does he desire to pour down his wrath, but he pursues, he pursues with a loving, compassionate heart to seek those that are lost. And this is what he was trying to get through with Paul. He desired his attention, his 
companionship, his commitment to Jesus. The second thing we see coming out of all of this is that we see that true salvation results in radical change. True salvation results in radical change. Saul represents for us one of the two extremes when it comes to those in opposition to Jesus. On the one hand, we have those that are in utter rebellion of all that is good and holy. They seek only to appease the flesh and to live in a worldly view so as to eliminate the need or even the mention of God himself. Those who want nothing to do with God, want no mention of God, want no reminder of God. Some of the tip are the typical, I have no need for God, I want to live my life the way I want crowd. And then there's what we are seeing more and more of today. That is those who claim to be of progressive thinking and woke theology, who believe that faith in God is outdated. And a crutch for those who are weak-minded, not strong enough to face today's reality. The other camp are those so entrenched in their false religion that they will go to great lengths and try to destroy any opposing faith. We also are seeing that today, particularly in certain extremists with certain religions. Saul would fall into this category, this last category we talked about. In fact, this, listen to this description of his efforts in Acts 8.3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Havoc of the church. Get that? Entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. He was going into people's homes, folks. This is how zealous he was. This is how it just his mindset was so determined to destroy Christianity. In fact, our focus verses this morning talk of Saul in these terms, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Hey, Saul was one bad dude. Let's be real, okay? He was not a nice person if you were a follower of Christ. He was your worst enemy. But he had an appointment with the Lord that day, and unbeknownst to him, his life would change. And what's more important also to note about this confrontation on the road to Damascus is how Jesus approaches Saul. He confronts him with his sin. Jesus points out exactly how he is guilty of sin just as he convicts us of our sin when he calls us to repentance. He lays before us why we need him in the first place. Because we are sinners. We offend a righteous and holy God with our actions. Also note how Jesus makes the, his sin a personal affront to himself. Just as our sin is. Don't ever think that there's any sin you can commit that's not an offense to God himself. An affront to Jesus. All of our sin is. Now, Paul's response, who art thou, Lord, in acknowledging a lack of relationship at this point, is interesting. Note that he uses, the use of the term Lord here was a term of respect, rather than actually acknowledging him as Lord just yet. But then, Jesus makes it clear who it is Saul is talking to. Now, I want you, <laughs> I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Or sandals, I guess. Put, him in, put yourself in his sandals for a moment. 
he is hearing a a voice from heaven. He is seeing this magnificent light. And yet he hasn't quite registered who it is he's talking to. I don't know about you, but it wouldn't take me long to understand who it was that was talking to me in that circumstance. But anyway, he calls him Lord out of respect rather than an actual acknowledgement of his Lord at that point. But then Jesus makes it clear who it is that he's talking to. And we see something shocking. We see something suddenly flip. Suddenly the one who has committed his life to extinguishing the movement led by Jesus suddenly fully he submits to the one behind that very movement. Because at that point, notice he says, What wilt thou have me to do? Suddenly he recognizes who it is, and not only does he recognize who it is, he says, What is my will for you? Or your will for me? What is it that you want me to do? Please don't miss the significance of that statement. This is an indication of a complete and total submission to the will of God. Jesus would then give him his tasking and would make it clear that he was expected to represent and to live for him. And as if to ensure that Saul has the opportunity to take in and meditate on all of this that has occurred, his blindness would continue for three full days. And Paul, if you'll note, spent that time fasting and praying. What a powerful lesson for Saul in humility. A man who was once the proud, powerful Pharisee now must not only submit to the will of Jesus, the one he persecuted, but now must at least initially be at the mercy of other men to lead him around because he can't see. Both from the men who led him into Damascus and Ananias who would reinforce the commission given him by the Lord. I've often wondered what happened to the men that were with him because we don't, we don't hear about that. We don't read about what happened. And were they converted too? Did they run scared not understanding what was happening? We don't get that. But what we do see is one of the most well-known, powerful apostles converted. And we cannot ignore that radical change in Saul. This is a mark of a truly converted person. When a person is saved, the Bible teaches us that, that they are changed, that they're reborn. If a person makes a profession of faith and then goes on living the same way that they did, with the same priorities, the same motivations, the same view of sin, then we have to wonder how genuine that conversion was. Now, I'm not going to say that I have the ability to see somebody's heart. I can't say for sure. But we are taught that there is fruit from conversion. There is fruit of salvation. Salvation is a life-changing experience. It sets us on an entirely different path with different priorities, different desires, different allegiances, different alliances even. Some may look at Saul's conversion and marvel at the fact that Jesus had personally called him like verbally confronted him. But the reality of it is that each person's call to salvation is no less direct, no less a, a call from Jesus Christ to salvation. 
And it's just as personal as Saul's was. The next thing we need to take away from this is that Saul, when we're called to salvation, we are saved with a purpose. We are saved with a purpose. I know we've talked about it many times, but the idea of our salvation we describe as our new beginning. And seeing as there is a beginning that God provides us, then there must be something important that follows that beginning. Because you don't have a beginning with nothing after it. There's always something after the beginning. When we are saved, we are sanctified. We are set apart. And remember, sanctification is for the purposes of God. Listen to again what Ananias is told by God regarding Saul. This is Paul, or God talking to Ananias about what Saul's purposes are going to be. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. And then more specifically, the direction Saul received directly from Jesus later in Acts, in Acts 26, 16 through 18. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, and to turn, from them, turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This is a pretty clear calling to the service of our Lord. But let's be clear. While our tasking after salvation may not be quite as direct as Paul's was, it's no less sure and important. We are called to be his ministers. We are called to be his ambassadors, his messengers, to live life serving him. And no longer serving self. While all may be called to different roles within the church, different ministries in our communities, to different work both local and distant, the Great Commission is something that we know is given to every single believer in Christ. It's really kind of silly thought, but some may have regarding after salvation. Some may view it as Jesus saying, well, here's your ticket to heaven. I'll see you when you get there. And unfortunately, I think some people view salvation like that. Here's your heaven ticket. See you whenever. And that's the end of it. But folks, that's not the end of it. Not by a long shot. Like the summation of a, the experience of submitting to God. But look again at Saul's initial response once Jesus identifies himself. What would you have me to do? The first time he uses the expression, Lord, it is out of respect in knowing that his encounter is supernatural. But this time it is a proclamation of submission both to the will of God and to the sovereignty of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is an integral portion of our salvation experience. We can't truly recognize Jesus as our Savior without fully embrace what he has done for us with, and acknowledging that he is now Lord of our lives. He is in control. We don't call the shots anymore. And that's a hard thing for us to do. To relinquish control of the decisions in our life to somebody else is not something that comes naturally. 
Understand something. We don't make him Lord of our life, though. He already holds that title. We simply have to acknowledge that truth and submit to it. And by submitting to his lordship, we're saying that we will live our life fulfilling the purpose for which he has called us. The last thing I want to quickly want to take away from this is that there is no past too wicked for God's grace. There is no past too wicked for God's grace. Of all the things that we see in this encounter that should encourage us is this message that resounds loudly, particularly for those who may not have come to know Jesus Christ. Whether you're here today, you're at the sound of my voice, let me be very clear. There is no past too wicked. There is no sin too great. There is no history too horrific that God's grace cannot cover it. Too many people, I believe, think that God could never love them for what they have done or how they have lived. People may look at their lives and say, you don't know the things that I've done. God doesn't want anything to do with me, I'm sure. They think somehow that they're just too far gone. But consider again how much evil Saul had done. And not just evil, mind you, but evil directly and specifically against the followers of Christ. A direct attack on Jesus himself. And yet, we see the tenderness in Jesus' plea to him. Saul, Saul, repeated, showing a pleading rather than a command. Understand that God loves you. And when he created you, he already knew the terrible sins you would commit. And that was one of the things I find mind-boggling. He knew the evil in our hearts. The magnitude of the actions. And not only did he choose to create us anyway, but he chose to have his son bear the burden and penalty for it. Before he created us. It's a love that we will never be able to fully understand and grasp this side of eternity. A love that's not based on who you are or who, what you've done, but entirely on who he is. God's love for us is based on who he is. It's a part of who he is. It's his character. He is God. He is love and he is good. And he does not wish that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance and find salvation in him. Just like Saul. Just like Saul, he says, I know all about your past. I know what you've done. I know some of the things that you've done you might consider pretty significant and severe, maybe even directly confronting God himself. But God says, you know what? My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient to cover all manner of sin. Jesus has confronted every single one of us today through God's word. Through God's word, he has revealed himself to us. Through God's word, he has called to us to, like Saul, commit our lives to him, declare him Lord of our lives, and live in a manner that reflects that. Acknowledging our sin and declaring him our Savior. Knowing that only he 
can bring about the forgiveness of sins and only he can restore the relationship with God that we were intended to have. The question is, where do you stand today? Where are you on the road to Damascus? Are you on the side where God has already confronted you and you've accepted? Or are you still waiting, having had that confrontation and undecided? The path is there and the choice is yours. Why not come to Jesus Christ today? Let's stand as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we come before your throne this morning. We thank you so much for this time that we have had, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that you have given us in your word of Saul of Tarsus. We thank you for the encouragement that it gives us, Lord, to know that there is not a one of us that is too far gone for you to reach out to. There's not a one of us that you don't call to, begging for us to come to you for salvation and lordship in our lives. Lord, I just ask that you continue to convict the hearts of all those that are here today. Those that have professed faith in you and those that have not. Convict our hearts of whatever it is in our lives that may need to be addressed whatever it is in our lives that we need to look to to begin to follow you in the path that you have for us. Just lay it upon our hearts, Lord, so it is unmistakable, undeniable that it is your calling in our lives. And Lord, I pray that all those that are called to salvation for the first time in their lives, or perhaps this has been the numerous times that you've called to them, that they will finally admit that they need you, that they would finally acknowledge that they need to declare you the Lord of their life and accept the salvation you so, so freely offer to us. Lord, just have your will and way in everybody who is here today or at the sound of my voice. And Lord, we love you and praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space Hyphen Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at ProvidenceNBCGaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.